Well, like me, you may have been riveted to your uh, television or your smaller screen this week as you watched what happened in our nation's capital. I had a chance to watch a lot of that. I watched it as a dad of a daughter and husband of a wonderful lady, and I watched it as a citizen, and I watched it as a pastor. And uh, it was one of those moments I wish that I had the mind of God, the wisdom of God. There's a lot I could say about it. We don't do politics in this church, but there's so much that came up this week that really isn't a political matter. Here's a couple things I was reminded of. That while good government is better than bad government all day long, no government can solve the fundamental issue of the human heart. No government will ever be good enough to deal with what's really broken in this world. That's why God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to fix what is ultimately broken, the human heart. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And God said to sinners that through Jesus Christ, we could receive his grace and have a relationship with him. And so when we look to Washington, for instance, to solve the fundamental problem of the human heart, we're always going to be disappointed. There's another thought that I had. There are some really deep hurts that were surfaced all around our country. I was reminded even after first service that those hurts have touched our church. Had a chance to think more deeply this week about what it means to be people who live in a fallen world where sin touches the most intimate parts of our lives. What, what does the church have to say to that? And then I had the thought that I can watch what's going on and have strong opinions. I felt my emotions going a couple of different ways while I was watching. And I thought, I want to make sure that I don't just watch and judge everything else. I want to ask God what he wants to do in me in light of this. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that today. Before we open up God's word together, I want to give you a chance to talk to God about what's going on in our country. I think we need him. I think countries go better when they humble themselves before a holy God. And, and I want us to lift up those in our congregation who've been hurt by the kinds of, the very kinds of dynamics we heard described this week. But I also want us to open up our own hearts and say, God, it'd be easy for us to focus all of our agenda and all of our energy out there. But today in this space, would you deal with me? So would you bow with me right now? And let's pray to our great God. God, I'm grateful that you're the one that brings hope. You're the one that brings life. You're the one that brings truth. I confess, Lord, that I don't have your mind. I don't have your wisdom. I can't see a human heart. I, I can't even always know when somebody's telling the full truth. So, Father, I ask that your hand would be upon what's going on in our country right now. God, I want to pray with all the humility and boldness. I know how to muster that, uh, that lies would not keep a good man down. And at the same time, that lies would not find its way into the highest court in our land. I confess, I don't have the ability to know all that. So, God, do what you want to do. Accomplish your good purpose and draw people back to you through this. Father, I want to take a moment and lift up the folks in our room, men and women, who are part of this congregation, whose lives have been touched, harmed, and hurt 
by the kinds of things we heard discussed this week. And this week, those things were brought back to the surface for them. Father, I want to pray your healing hand upon them. I pray that in this congregation, there would always be receptive ears to hear the story of tragedy, but there would be open mouths to speak hope, life, and truth, that the pain that happened to us does not define us fully. We're defined not as victims, but as victors through Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would not be so enraptured by what's happening on outside of ourselves that we fail to look at what's going on in our own hearts. Father, as we come now to the texts that we're going to look at today, I pray that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit. You would open our minds, illuminate our hearts, open our ears to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Well, while we're here in Cuba, some few hundred miles away, there are nine foreseers who are doing the Lord's work. They are members of this congregation who sacrificed financially to participate in the missions trip. And I don't have pictures for you yet because Cuba is a closed-off country. We've only gotten marginal word that they are all safe. They're doing well. They're attending multiple church services and representing well. But if you come next week, I'll be glad to show you some uh, pictures, some photos, and let you hear a few stories about how God used our people in Cuba. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that has a profound work, a missions work, an orphanage in India, as well as now a growing work in Cuba. So thanks for just being a generous congregation. And this week... If you have some time to pray, pray for our folks that are there. And we're beginning right now the third part of a message series called God, Family, and Hustle. How does God intersect with our family? And what would it look like if we got very serious about going after all that God has for our family? And i got to tell you, today we're going to look at a couple passages that are what I call speed bump passages in the Bible. Hey, you know what a speed bump is. It's meant to slow you down, right? And if you know there are speed bumps there, before you get there, you slow down. You anticipate it coming, and you kind of inch over the speed bump. But have you ever been driving, and you didn't realize that there was a speed bump there? And you kind of hit one a little too fast? That's the impact of the passages today. If you're reading the Bible, all's going well, and then you come upon one of these two passages we're going to look at, and all of a sudden, boom, ba-boom, boom. You just feel the jarring. That's what happens with these passages, and when we get to them, it'll be immediately obvious why that is. Now, I was very ambitious in the preparation of this message, but in first service, I discovered we're only going to get halfway through, which is really good. What that means is that we're going to focus half of the message today on men, and then, or all the message today on men, and then the other half of the message I intended today will come next week, and we'll talk primarily to ladies, all right? But that doesn't mean that, ladies, you can zone out today, because I want to start by asking you a couple questions. In the relationships of your life, here's the first question. In the relationships of your life, do you want that relationship with your husband, uh, if you're a man, with your, with your wife, with, with your children, with your adult kids, if you're adult, with your adult, do you want the relationships of your life defined primarily by fairness, or do you want them defined primarily by grace? Now, you're in church, you might know that the right answer is grace, but I want us to think deeply about that question for a minute. Do you want fairness or do you want grace? That's, in fact, the first blank on your message notes that are found on the back of the paper that you came in. Do you want fairness or do you want grace? Now, I was confronted with this as a child. My dad worked 
for the MMR's candy company, and he worked in research and development. And what that meant is, is we often had the new candies that were coming out on the market in our home long before anybody else had them. And it wasn't unusual to open up the refrigerator and see a block of chocolate or caramel or some other candy um, that my dad had been working on, and he would bring some home. And it wasn't unusual to see that. And I remember one particular day, my dad had brought some home, uh, brought home some candy stuff, and it was me and my three siblings, and our house was the house that everybody played in the yard in. So there's a bunch of kids, and my dad comes in. He's like, hey, I got some candy. So I run into the house. I know what this means. It's going to be a good afternoon. And he's like, here, son, you uh, divide it out for everybody. Now, this was awesome when you were chosen to divide it out because what this meant is, is you could work on the side of grace. You could give yourself a little bit more than you deserved. And so I about, you know, I grabbed the knife out of the drawer. I'm about to cut this block of, of candy, like, you know, literally a block of candy, and it's almost as if my dad could read my thoughts. He said, hey, you go ahead and divide it out. You cut it out, and then I'm going to let your brother pick the first piece. And immediately, immediately, how I was going to cut that candy changed. I went from trying to think about how I would cut the candy so I get the bigger piece to I got down to incredible amounts of precision so that not one piece was any bigger than any other piece because if my brother picks first, I didn't want him to get a bigger piece than me. And in a span of just a few minutes, I found out just how important fairness is. And in a relationship, fairness is important. But it's not all that you need in a relationship. In fact, if the relationships in your life, and primarily today, husband and wife, if the relationship between a husband and a wife is primarily built on fairness, over time, I'm going to suggest to you what you're going to see happen in that relationship is life and vitality will trickle away. It'll be like a car parked in the driveway for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you don't get into the car, turn the key, and start it from time to time. You don't know it, but while the car's sitting there, over time, that battery is slowly draining. It's running a clock that doesn't use a lot of power. So that's why you can leave the clock on when you go in one night, come out the next morning, and the car still starts. It's very little power, very little trickle drain on that battery. But over time, you don't start it. For a very long time, that battery is going to drain down. Yeah, relationships built on fairness only, they have their place, but in a family, it's never going to be enough. Grace, which is treating people more than how they deserve, giving them more than they deserve, being a little extra special and kind. When grace is a word that defines the dynamic between a husband and a wife, those relationships over time are the ones that we all look at and go, I want a marriage like that. It's the older couple you see at the restaurant chatting, and you can tell they're still in love with each other. And you think, man, when I get to be that age, that's the kind of relationship we want, where they're still smiling at one another, still interested in each other's words. And without even knowing it, they probably have had the same conversation 80 times. But there's still a spark there. I'm telling you, at the core will be a fundamental way they treat each other. It won't simply be fairness, it'll be grace. We're going to look at a couple chapters today that if we're honest, two levels of grace are going to be required to walk in the shadow of these passages. I have to confess to you that I need level one grace, which is when we talk to men in just a minute, the truth is, is I don't fully live up to all I'm going to share with you today. I've done it imperfectly. Now, I'm not a total rogue. I haven't completely dismissed. I'm not a total failure. But in the passages we're going to read today, the reason why they're a speed bump for me is they call me to a higher level, a more mature level, a more godly level of living. 
than I do consistently. So they make me stop in my tracks. And they remind me that I need not fairness from the Lord. <laughs> I mean, if I've ever, ever thought I needed fairness from God, that line of thinking stops real quick. I don't need fairness from God. You know what I need from God? I need grace. These passages remind me of that. But even without these passages, just for a moment, we'll just go down the, the, the road with me for a second if you don't mind. Uh, think about for a minute about the, about the challenge of asking God to be fair. It could be that some tragedy, some difficulties happen in your life, and it feels very unfair, and maybe in some sense it is. And so you may have even found yourself looking up to God and just say, you know, where's the justice in this? But again, every time I start to go down that line, I'm arrested in my tracks because when I think really about what God owes me, really what he owes me, it's not a pretty picture. What, what God really owes me Based on my own behavior, well, here's how the Apostle Paul said it, and he's pretty right. He said that the wages of sin, like what you get paid for, what you're owed for sin, the wages of sin is death. And when I really stop to think about who I am, what I've done, how I've lived my life in light of a holy God, I don't deserve much. The wages of sin, actually, if I got what I deserve, is death. But, Paul writes, but the gift of God, the word there is charis in the Greek, the language of the New Testament, the gift of God, the grace of God is eternal life. Yeah, I don't want God to be fair. I'll just be honest with you. It's an ugly picture for me if God gets fair. I want God to be gracious. And in my marriage, the truth is, if it's going to have vitality, if in my family, in my relationship with my kids, there's going to be life, if I'm only focusing on my rights, I'm going to be miserable. If I only make everybody in the conversation that we're talking about family with focus on their rights, we're going to be miserable. What we have to do instead is focus upon this other adjective, this other descriptor, a grace-filled relationship. Now, when we open up the Bible in just a second, I've got to ask you to do something. I've got to ask you, here's the next point, to check your heart, to check your heart, when you get riled up processing biblical truth. So these passages are speed bumps, the one for the men, the one for the women, because as you read them, most of us, if we're honest, are confronted with our own lack of measuring up. But there's another reason. There's a handful of words used in these passages that just are laden with emotion. Uh, because of the culture we live in, uh, because of the way we've seen other people talk about them, because of the way they've been abused, because of their own selfishness sometimes in our own hearts? That you have to kind of slow down and process these. But here's something I've discovered. Whenever I'm reading the Bible and I find myself getting riled up, it's an opportunity for me to stop and check my heart. It's like a, it's like a thermometer taking a spiritual temperature. Temperature's rising. Why? And sometimes when I read the Bible, like, I get really motivated how many other people should be reading this passage and obeying it. I've done that for some of you sometimes. Like, I'll be going through something, and I'm reading something, and I'm like, this is what he needs. I should email him. You know, I, I should tell him. I'm going to preach on that a couple months out so you can't draw the connections too close. I, I, there's been a lot of things I've thought as I've read the Bible for you. Sometimes I, other times I've read the Bible, and if I'm honest, like, my temperature will rise for me. Right? So whenever that happens, it's a really good opportunity to just stop and say, all right, so what's going on in my heart? 
that there's such an emotional response to this passage. And the reason I'm saying that is because that, for some of you, that may happen today. Like, like when we're reading them, some of you may be on the receiving end. Like, you might be the husband as I talk to the wife, or you might be the wife as I talk to the husband. You might be on the receiving end, and you might be going, oh, God, please let him hear this. Or, why is this the one Sunday they didn't come? Or, I'm going to send this to him. Or you may have like a son or a daughter or a friend, and they're going through a relationship stuff, and you're like, man, this is what they need. And that, that's okay. That's not wrong. Right? It's okay. But, but Scripture... Scripture is used in a lot of ways, but one of the primary ways God uses Scripture is to let it flow through your heart before it comes out of your mouth. And this is why Jill knows that every time we come to the fall and we do a relationship series, uh, we have to be extra nice to each other, because if not, we fight more. Just so you know, we tend to fight more when I preach on marriage. So thank you very much. I appreciate that, you guys. Um, we do. And so we've just said each, to each other, we're going to a little extra grace here in this season because you can't do scripture without it coming through. And then the other thing that happens is that there's a spiritual struggle that kicks in sometimes. Some of you for today, like literally, you'll be involved in a spiritual struggle by the time we get done. You'll feel the tension. All right? So let me give you kind of the guiding principle for us today. When I focus on my responsibilities rather than my rights, my marriage or my future marriage will go beyond my wildest dreams. If you focus on fairness, your rights, I didn't get mine, and that's the primary tone and tenor of your relationship, your marriage, that's not going to be an enjoyable place for you. Here's what I deserve. I didn't get it. You didn't meet my needs. You said you would and you didn't. I thought you would and you didn't. You promised you would and you didn't. Right? Now, that's a conversation we might need to have. But if that is what defines, if that's the overarching feeling of the relationship not going to go well. That's a fairness-based relationship. That's a vying for rights kind of relationship. But there's a whole better way to do it, a way that actually will bring life and vitality. In fact, if, if you're here and you just make a couple of changes we're talking about today, in a short amount of time, I believe, as you open yourself up to God and the truth in his word, you'll begin to see the trickle of life back into your relationship. It'd be like that car in the driveway but now there's the little drain on the battery, but you've hooked up what they call a trickle charge. If you have a motorcycle, those of you who have motorcycles, you know you can't leave your motorcycle in the garage all winter long and expect in the spring to start the thing up with the battery. No, you've got to put a trickle charger on it. And it puts just a little bit of juice into that battery as it sits there unused. The kind of things we're talking about today, they're a, they're a trickle charge. For some of you, it's going to be like the like the moment in the ER where there's like dead on arrival and they're rubbing the paddles together and they're about to do a massive charge. That's the power of the word of God, openly received in the heart. So, so let me ask you a fundamental question just to get to the root of the matter. Do you want, next blank, the good life or do you want the godly life? Now, now, now the truth is, is I actually believe the good life is the godly life, but I didn't always believe that. And you're going to have opportunities in your relationships, parents with your kids, kids with your adult parents, siblings together, in school, certainly in marriage. And the culture and the world in your own heart is going to say to you, this would be the good life. This is what you deserve. But then the word of God is going to stand in stark contrast to that and say, but this is the godly life. And at the root, between the options, at the root of the tension is going to be, do you believe that what God wants for you is best, and if you follow God's way, you'll have the best life possible? 
Or is there another path that you can follow and get what you deep down really want? Which is it? So with these kind of things in mind, we can begin to open up a passage. And we'll start today with Ephesians chapter 5. This is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I go here a lot. It's one of my favorites. It's about my third favorite book in the Bible, all right? Of all 66, I go here a lot. There's so much great stuff in here for churches, for families. Paul's going to talk specifically about marriage here. But it's a speed bump, friends. Our culture doesn't like this passage. There are times I don't like this passage, and I'm on God's side. Like I, you know. But the truth of this passage is not going to require a theology degree for you to discern. In fact, today I'm doing less telling you what it means and more just helping you see the obvious implications, the application, if you will. It's like there on the surface. The meat in this passage is on the surface. And yet it's stark. I, I, in fact, I ended last week's message with the beginning of this passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what our Bible says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So last week I explained, I can imagine the Apostle Paul writing to the church, and he's talked about all the sacrifice Christ has made. He's talking about some challenges in the local church, which is the family of God. The family of God, the dynamics there kind of overlap the dynamics of an earthly family. Two institutions founded by God, both of which have incredible redemptive potential, both of which are fought extremely hard by the enemy of your soul. The enemy wants church to be ugly and he wants family to be ugly. Both are God-ordained. Both can bring good, so both get fought hard. So Paul says, here's a secret, friends, to the church there. Here's a secret. Everybody submit to one another. Another way of saying that is, prefer your brother. That's another biblical phrase. Don't go in guns blazing for your rights. Surefire way to suck the life out of a relationship. So submit to one another. And I don't know that Paul did this, but it, as a pastor, I read this passage. And it's almost as if I'm saying, I hear him saying, now this is a complex idea, so I'm going to break it down for you. So then he's going to talk to women about what it means, what's the implication to submit to one another for Christ. And then he's going to talk to men about what does it mean to submit to one another as unto Christ. Because he knows if he just leaves that blanket statement, there's not going to be enough meat on the bones to make application. Man, I don't know if that's what he's thinking. I don't know if that's how the Holy Spirit's working. But when I read it today, at least I see that's some of the impact of this passage. Now, I got, I got to tell you, we're going to focus on men today. But to get there, we've got to go over the speed bump of Paul talking to women. Don't get frustrated, ladies. Um, just a couple things to make, make it clear. Um, every time the New Testament talks about marriage, it's fascinating. Um, and there's some language to Women, men, sometimes to kids. Um, every time the New Testament starts with the language to women. Every time. And every time in the New Testament, it says largely the same thing. So we're just going to have to look at that. All right? And we're going to save most of that language for next week. Um, and then when he like, gets done talking to women, he spends some time talking to, to men. And every time he talks to men, it's largely the same kind of language. 
So, so in biblical interpretation, when you're trying to like evaluate what does a passage mean and what are its implications, one of the ways you know it's an important principle that's overarching is it gets repeated in several of the different pieces of literature. There's 66 unique books in our Bible, and when it's repeated in multiple books and it's largely the same content, you know it's important. And you know that it's applicable not to just one time and place, but to a handful, at least, that were available in the New Testament and broadly applicable in our world today. The reason I'm saying this is this is not a passage as a disciple that you should dismiss because it's uncomfortable. Just the opposite. Time to drill down. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then he turns to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Some language for ladies we'll get to next week. Right now we're going to park and talk to men. And I got a couple rules here. Um, Again, don't like, as I'm talking, stand up and go, he's talking to you. Listen, don't, don't do that. It would just be awkward. I wouldn't know what to do. Um, that's not the kind of outburst I enjoy, all right? The other thing is don't internalize that. Like, even if you don't do it out loud, don't do it. Like, I hope he's listening. Well, me too. Like, I hope he's listening too. But what I want to do for everybody, male and female, married, unmarried, going to be married, was married, is married, all the permutations I can say about how to divide it in this group, young or old, is I want us to understand some of the blueprint of marriage done well. You understand, marriage was God's design. It was God who said it's not good for a man to be all one. Alone. All one. So it'll make for him a help me suitable. And then God takes, as Genesis tells us, from the rib of Adam... And it's been described not from the foot so he couldn't lord it over, and not from the head so that she couldn't lord it over, but from the rib so they could walk side to side as co-heirs together in the gospel that is offered through Christ. But when he talks about order in the home, this word for submission keeps coming up. And it'd be easy to dismiss, but you can't dismiss it if you want to take the passage seriously. And then when he talks to men, there's some of the same imagery that comes up. So men, here we go. To be a godly husband, I think a man has to make three commitments to his wife. And if you're not married, here's why you should listen. You know somebody that is. You know somebody that is. If you were married, when we go through this, you might have some insight now to why on a spiritual level things didn't work. You have a friend that's going through some stuff. You might be given some tools in the next couple minutes to help zero in on the real challenge in the relationship. Around here, we have a simple model that we think truth still sets people free. So, men, I'm not beating you up today. In fact, I'm a fellow traveler with you. I get to church on Sunday mornings before my wife, and I knew about the time she'd be coming, so I called her and I said, Honey, um, today... 
I got to talk about some things that I do okay at, but I got a long way to go. And it would just break my heart if you thought I was a hypocrite. I, I can't do that. So total confession for you. I don't live up to all this stuff, but before the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to the best of my understanding, this is true for men, true for men who God allows to have a marriage relationship. All right, so here's the first commitment I think a man needs to make to his wife. I will love you no matter what you do as Christ loves the church. I will love you no matter what you do as Christ loves the church. Let's talk about that for a second. No matter what you do. See, uh, I'll love you depending on what you do. That is a justice kind of conversation. That is a fairness conversation. And that has its place. And if you're in a dynamic with your spouse, with your wife, and it's not going well, you're allowed to talk about that stuff, of course. But how you talk about it determines whether or not you're focusing on the fairness side of things or the love and grace side of things. The, the call here is not to just absorb everything, but it's to engage it with the motivation and the heart and the attitude that Jesus had as he engaged the church. You understand the church is the bride of Christ. So let's talk about the bride of Christ for a minute. Have you ever noticed how crazy the church can be? Seriously. Last 2,000 years of church history. The church started on the day of Pentecost, back just a few days after Jesus had died. And we've got a lot of history, well documented. When I sit down with my extended family, I'm the representative for all of Christianity, typically, which is a really fun hat to wear. And I go to these family events, and they want to talk about, you know, all of church history, and I'm there to give an account and explain it all. I haven't made it to a family reunion in a while, friends. I just, um, but anyway, so here I am, the token pastor Christian, and you know, here's, here's how crazy the church is. Well, what about that? crusade time in church history the crusades you know i was like boy how do you explain that i'm like do you want me to explain it historically economically sociologically because i can't really explain it theologically i i'll consent you win this point way to go yay the church can be crazy and when I'm on my game you know what i do i try to let it come out and talk about it and actually agree with some points you know God's not here to establish an earthly kingdom, and anytime we get that confused, we're headed for trouble. But isn't it really awesome how much Jesus continues to work with and purify his church, starting with me? See, our church history is full of crazy moments. How about the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition? People were burned at the stake. Oh, yeah, consent. That was a horrible moment in church history. You're right. You're right. Sometimes as a pastor, I, I think it was a horrible days, but I remember once I saw somebody say, like, man, it's really hard to go to church, and it's really difficult, and, you know, it's hard to follow along. And I think, boy, if you were alive in the Inquisition and you said stuff like that, we'd just burn you. We'd just, like, put your stake in you and burn you. It's a whole lot easier today than it was back then. But I agree that was a bad period in church history. We don't want to come back to that stuff. That's really bad. And then they'll name, of course, you know, somebody in the last 15, 20 years, some preacher who has certain notoriety that, took a tumble, and I'm like, you're right. So here's the thing. The church, the bride of Christ, can be crazy. And Jesus knew every bit of that, and he still gave his life in an incredible display of love for his crazy bride. 
He did. Without reservation and without holding back. He gave himself for his crazy bride. And behind all those examples of craziness is a God who is positioned as the husband. Who loves and cares and nurtures and protects and continues. Doesn't dismiss. Doesn't throw it out. There is no deadline. There is no expiration date on the love of God for his church. And this is the kind of love we're called to. It's a no matter what, won't tap out kind of love. And it's a love not even based on the performance of the church. I mean, there are entire seasons where the church didn't get after the mission God told them to get after to at all. There are people in this room that are Christians, and you've been Christians for generations. You know, 25, 30, 40 years, and you're not any more after the mission of God than you were the day you started. I mean, it's just being honest. You know what God's heart for you is? He loves you. Because his love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on the position you have as his bride. And that's the kind of love we're called to. I don't love my wife because she performs. Although, to be honest with you, she performs incredibly well. Like, she's good at a lot of stuff. And man, when I see her performing that way, man, something in my heart swells in a good way with pride. And I'm like, man, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And then there are a few areas that we won't talk about for very long. She's not very good at. So if you guys want to make me some desserts, homemade sometimes on occasion. I mean, there are some things she's not very good at. You know what? I don't love her because she's good or not good. I'm not loving her based on her performance. I'm loving her because positionally, she was declared before God, an audience, my family, to be my wife. That's it. So my response to that, my responsibility to her position is I love her. Not when she meets my needs, but all the time. I don't love her just when she performs, but all the time. And friends, that's exactly how Christ loved us. In fact, (laughs) when I really start struggling in my marriage and I start feeling that fairness gene rise up, that desire for fairness and justice, it's a really good time for me to pull out this passage and let the Holy Spirit do its work and say, Ben, really? Do you want fairness? Really? Because in your role, Ben, as I know the metaphor gets crazy here, but Ben, in your role as the bride of Christ, do you want your husband, Jesus himself, to treat you fairly? Really? When I, when I think deeply about that, then the temperature starts to come down. And I remember, my role is to model Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. This is not something I can do in my own power. And that's why Paul didn't write this to the world. This is not the standard for the world. This is the standard for Christians. It requires a Holy Spirit empowerment to live up to this kind of love. I can't do it on my own. And even with the Holy Spirit, we struggle sometimes. But this is exactly what I'm called to. And we too, men, we have to give the women, the wives in our life, we have to give them permission to mess up and to not hit performance on occasion and to still feel the tenderness of our love. It's what they need. It's what they were designed for. It makes all the difference. It's the trickle charge over time, keeping the battery fully charged. 
Without it, without it, over time, you'll be going through life and going through the motions, and you'll wake up one morning, metaphorically go with me, and you'll go in to start the car, and you'll turn the key, and there'll be nothing there. Didn't happen overnight. It happened over several nights, for there was a quest for fairness and not an emphasis on grace. The very grace you've actually already received. You want to talk about fair? Here's what's fair. You already got the grace from Jesus. Now just give it out. This is exactly the point of the parable Jesus told. Where a man had been been forgiven for a billion dollars worth of debt, but he couldn't forgive a guy who owed him a thousand dollars. Like there's disequity there. It's not an equilibrium. And it could be that you just haven't thought for a while and you haven't thought hard enough about just how good God has been to you personally and what he's redeemed you from. So I'm going to love you no matter what as Christ loves the church. And number two, I'm going to give up whatever it takes. I'm going to give up whatever it takes. Did you read our passage? Husbands, love your, love your wives as just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm going to give up whatever it takes. And I want to tell you something, men. We're called to give up. And before anybody in this room was called to be a husband, you were called by Christ to a relationship with him where he demonstrated the ultimate give up. Not that he even wanted to. And a powerfully poignant moment in our Bible that I think speaks to its reliability and trustworthiness. We find the hero of the Bible, Jesus himself, in a garden crying, praying with dreps, with with sweat that was dripping like blood off of him. And he says these words, I don't want to drink this cup, Father. I don't want to do this. It's not what I want. Wow. The hero says that. Like the guy who's perfect says, I don't want to do this. And then he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then he gets up and he gives up everything for you, men, for me. And then he looks at it and he says, you want to have the life that I've designed for you, a life beyond your wildest dreams. You're going to have to learn what it is to give up for the one you love. And I know you know some of that already, men. You already feel the tension of that. But I want to drill down just a, a few minutes on what it means to give up. It's to lay ourselves down before a holy God and humbly submit to his lordship. And in some ways to lay ourselves down before the needs and the well-being of our family, specifically our wife. It's to pursue her. To pursue her. Not to make her chase you. But for you to pursue and for you to make romance and tenderness a priority. I, I know the culture won't speak to you like this. Your buddies won't get together and ask you, how are you creating a tender environment in your family? They're not going to ask you that. That'd be a little weird. Please don't do that to me. I don't know, won't know what to do. Right? But that is exactly what you're called to. For you pursue the tenderness. You fill her bucket the way she needs to be filled. You use your words, the Bible says. You speak with goodness in your words, and you speak in a way that is for the good of your hearers, in this case, for the good of your wife. We're called to give up a lot. Let me tell you one of the biggest 
and hardest things that most men that in the 14 years of leading this church and in the seven years of teaching high school before that and keeping up with a lot of those students over the last 15 years. And our culture, it's almost as if we allow men to continue and encourage them to stay in this delayed adolescent stage. It's in some ways, is an easy target. So I just trust that those of you that know me and have seen my heart on display for you as a congregation for the last 15 years will give me a little latitude here. I'm not going for easy targets here. I'm going to fundamental problems that if they're not dealt with will bring harm and hurt to your family, to yourself, to your kids. And if you get this right, what we're talking about, men, not only will your wife and your kids, but your grandkids will look to you. They'll look to the legacy that you set. It'll be that powerful. Our culture encourages you to stay in adolescence, but God calls you to give it up. Paul said it this way, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So let's talk about a handful of the childish things you might have to give up. Man, if you really want to do marriage well, you might have to like, give up adolescent struggles with, with lust. You know what I'm talking about without being too crass, right? The adolescent struggle that says, if you have an urge, go ahead and satisfy it. Satisfy it right away. Your body was made for this anyway. Your hormones are demanding it. So go ahead and find a way to express it. And the scripture looks at those dynamics and says, men, there's a way to have sexual expression in marriage that isn't as an adolescent would, but it is as a man would. There's a way of putting your wife first and serving and giving in that area of your life that ultimately will lead to life. But if you give yourself to the whisper and to the lies of culture that says just stay in an adolescent zone, you'll discover that what God meant for incredible pleasure and enjoyment will actually become a source of pain and contention in your life. The adolescent boy satisfies his urges right away, and it's really not about the partner. It's really about himself and what he can get out of it. So it doesn't matter who I'm with because it's really not about that person. It's about me. And if I can't find a person, I can find an event or I can find a screenshot or I can find a video and I can satisfy it that way. You're going to have to give that up, men. If you really want to have the kind of life that deep down you really want. Because that's adolescence. In fact... On the subject of urges, you might have to give up a lot of urges or at least filter them. Let them be sanctified by God's power. We had a front row seat as a country to look at the evils of alcohol used in an unfiltered and undisciplined way this week. I'm not speaking to the, to the veracity of all that may have been said this week. But as a pastor, I sat there with rapt attention and I thought, is this the time that we can talk about the use and the evils of alcohol in a way that people are more open to it? The Bible's crystal clear, men. Drunkenness is never your way, period, if you're a follower of Jesus. You're to avoid drunkenness at all costs. You just are. And the adolescent says, that's my right. This is my right of passage. I'm just sowing my wild oats. But the man says, God has called me to more. You're going to have to deal with your money problems. If you want to be a man. Like, you're going to have to get rid of the desire to satisfy your urges financially. 
and in an unfiltered way and let God redeem that and make it right. Like you can't just spend. You can't just spend on yourself. In our family, I can't imagine me going out and saying, well, Jill spent a little bit of money over here, so now I need to go spend a little bit of money over here. So I come home with, you know, and I, yeah, I like stuff. I do, I like stuff. I, I, I like stuff a lot. But I've learned there's a part of my mature relationship with my wife, my God-honoring relationship, my Jill-honoring relationship. I can't just come home and go, look what I bought. And then she leans in, I go, oh, you spent over here. And I, that's adolescent stupidity. No, every major decision beyond a reasonable dollar amount. Hey, before I do this, what do you think about this? Is this the right time? Are we here? Are we good? That's maturity. By the way, if you want to get married, you probably have to have a job. I don't mean to be mean. It's just the truth. Because every time God speaks to men, men are declared in some real capacity as the primary provider for the home. Women can also provide. Proverbs 31, the woman was industrious. She produced. She sold goods. So clearly women can do it. But men are considered the primary provider, protector, nurturer, and caregiver. Or you can stay stuck in adolescence and keep just satisfying yourself and getting your needs met. And by the way, you'll always be able to find enough men around you to slap you on the back and encourage you because that's what foolish men do. I've known men who were 15, and I've known adolescents who were 50. I've never known an adolescent to have a thriving marriage. Never. Never. I've never known an adolescent man of 45 years old who's secretly texting somebody in his office who had a thriving marriage. Never. Never known a man who was sneaking off at night looking at porn on his computer. Week in, week out. To have a thriving marriage. When I was a man, I put away childish things. You might have to give something up, men. But what you give up for the cause of Christ and what you give up that God calls you to give up for his glory, for your good, for your wife's good, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your great-grandkids, that price you pay to give up will pale in comparison to the rewards you reap. But the enemy has lied to you and told you that you deserve everything now. But you don't. You don't. And the very grace that you're is available to you through Christ. It's the very grace that you're to extend to your spouse. And when you do, your kids will see it. Your neighbors will see it. Your grandkids will see it. You give up a little bit of time to spend some time in God's word. You put down the remote control. You put down the, 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 the video game controller. You, you put down the newspaper, whatever it is, your vice that you use to disconnect with, and you pick up the word of God. When you give up that thing and you pick up God's word instead, the payoff of that will make all the difference in your life. I love you no matter what. I'll give up whatever it takes, and I'll care for you gently no matter what has happened. I'll care for you gently no matter what has happened. There's language in this passage that talks about the power of a man to make his wife holy through the washing of water, through the word. Now, I can't make my wife holy in the sense that I can declare her holy in the way that Christ can. But I can be a partner with the good work of God in her life. I can. 
and through the use of God's word, through my own words, through the washing of myself, through us submitting humbly to the text, we can together grow. How I correct, how I speak words, how I nudge in the direction I want to go says everything about my love for her and commitment to her and my maturity as a man. Two big extremes to avoid. To not engage at all. There are men in this room and you don't engage at all because you've gotten some pushback and the pain of it. And you tried a few times and it didn't go well. And then you, got, you feel like you're paying a major price for even trying to do it. So you've learned you're not, you know, you're not stupid. You put your hand in the cage, it's going to get bit. So you've learned don't put your hand in the cage. And you've basically given up your right to be a part of growing your marriage towards maturity. And then the other extreme is like you're eager. You just want to put your hand in there and you want to grab it. And it's a violent, you know, in your heart at least, even if it doesn't come out physically, it's a violent engagement. Now, we engage gently correction and direction in our families. You see this same principle show up. For fathers, men, many of you are married, will be fathers, you are fathers. Uh, fathers, don't exasperate your children in how you discipline them. Discipline them, but how you discipline them. As you're setting direction, as you're having conversations about important things in your family, how you have them, have them, but how you have them matters. And your gentle tone, your quiet spirit will match the spirit that Christ had when by his Holy Spirit, he nudged on your heart and drew you to him. No, you were wrong, and he was clear you were. You were a sinner in need of a Savior, and he was clear about that. But how he did it, it was, the Scripture says, the compassion, the kindness of God that drew you to repentance. If you'll love her as Christ loved the church, and if you're willing to give up whatever it takes, and if you'll direct and correct and be with in a gentle spirit, I'm telling you, you will bring new life into your relationship. If you're not married, don't make the mistakes a lot of us have made. Get on the path of personal growth real quick. Get on the path of discipleship real quick. Let's do this. Next week, I'm going to speak to ladies. And who knows? I might have to shut the church down after that. You might, like, all be mad. Because my hope is with the exact same clarity I've spoken to men against culture's lies, I intend to speak to women. And let's be clear, I'm not speaking to the world. I'm speaking to people who are Jesus followers who say that the word of God is God's truth for us. And I'm going to simply try to explain what the passages say. But right now, I want you to grab out your Connect card. As you're doing that, <clears throat> let me give you an opportunity for right now to take next step A. Maybe you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, and you need to be. If that's you, you should know that your heavenly father loves you so much he sent his one and only son, Jesus. And if you put your faith and trust in him, you can have life instead of death. I'm going to give you a chance in a minute when we pray to do business with God. You can use my words. You can use your own. You can express to God, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Take the pen and check next step A. Put the card in the offering bucket in a minute when it comes by, and we'll communicate with you about what that means. Or maybe today your step is, next step B, that you need to be baptized. If you have questions or want to be baptized, we want to celebrate with you what God has done. Just check the box. It starts the conversation. Next step C says small group number. And so on your message notes on the inside, there's a bunch of small groups. 
you know what group you want to be a part of, and a one-step sign-up, you can just put the number right there at Next Step C and circle it. You're in. We'll send you a confirmation email. Or just check Next Step C if you don't know the numbers, haven't had a chance to get through it. We'll send you the entire list electronically, and you can check that way, all right? But if you get into a small group, it might exponentially increase your growth. Next Step D says, I'll read through and I'll pray through Ephesians 5. And then we're going to look at 1 Peter 3 next week. It's a way of just humbling and preparing your heart for what God might want to do. And then finally, next step is send me the link for Grow One. This is the primary path of discipleship for us. Where we talk about why we're a church, what's important to us, how it is we're trying to partner with families to see God's good work happen in their life. At the end of it, you'll understand some doctrine. You'll hear the core of the message of this church. And you'll have a chance to... Decide if you want to be a part of this church family or not. It's an opportunity for growth that for most people who go through it, they love it, all right? So just check the box. We'll send you all all that information. What I'd love for you to do right now, though, is uh, set that card aside. And in just a minute, we're going to pray. But first of all, would you just turn your attention up here? I've been preaching from this drum. Um, This is a drum like uh, one we had in the woods back in the neighborhood that I grew up in. There were a couple of these set on bricks and a few holes in the bottom, and people would build fires in there in the woods while they were fishing or, or uh, hunting or whatever. And when I was a little boy in, in the South, I grew up in Southeast Tennessee, I'd take my BB gun and I'd shoot at it and stuff. And it's just today, though, for the purpose, it just represents a vessel. In First Peter chapter 3, the Bible talks about vessels. And it makes a distinction between a vessel that is a man and a vessel that is a woman. And it talks about the specialness of the vessel that is a a woman. And so on this stage, just to kind of represent that, I I have a vessel maybe that represents men, this 55-gallon drum. It holds a lot. It has great utility, strong, takes a beating. It has its purpose. These things are punched out by a machine one after the other. But, but on top of it, um, I have a little vase that Jill and I picked up a few years ago. Um, this vase is handmade. We don't have a lot of expensive stuff in our house. We've opted to spend our money otherwise. But this is a relatively expensive item we have. And we had just finished our home. And we were up in Chicago. And we happened to go into Saks Fifth Avenue, a store we don't shop at a lot. In fact, it was the off Saks Fifth Avenue, the, you know, the, the, the cheap one. And uh, this was on, like, discount, discount, discount. It's a hand-blown glass vase, and you know it's hand-blown because it's not perfect. So, like, this side's a little different than this side. It's unique because it's hand-blown. Each one's special, but it had just the right mix of colors we wanted that matched our remodel. And I'm holding it with two hands because if I drop it, that would be a problem for us. And it costs a little bit more money than I normally like to spend, so it's special. And then I just want to remind you that... Um, the woman, if you're a husband, that God's allowed you to have, she's much more like this vase than she is like this vessel over here. This is replaceable. It has certain utility. Nobody would call this beautiful. (laughs) But this handmade, by its maker, flaws and all, if you call them flaws, from the other perspective, it's part of the beauty of it. It's value, it's specialness, it's place of prominence in our home, right on the mantle. That's more of the gift that God has given you and your wife. And he's called you to love it, love her, treat her specially, 
She's more than the utility that she brings to think of beauty and value. And ladies, I just want to be clear. I know that our culture right now is having a discussion in some degree about the, uh, the value of women in our culture. I just want you to know that for God, that conversation was settled a long time ago. Now, I'm really sorry that sometimes men in our culture, from a brokenness sometimes in them, sometimes from an evilness in them, sometimes from a selfish or short-sightedness in them, haven't always treated you like the special thing, the person made in the image of God, unique that you are. But you are. And as a church, we know this, that if we can get men to fall more in love with Jesus, they're going to fall more in love with you. And we, what we want for every man in this room is to know how special you are and to walk with that because that light that shines from every home that operates that way, imperfectly, of course, but with a consistent arch in that direction, and every bit of that light changes. It changes you. It changes your kids. It changes your neighborhood. It changes the school. And if you'll let me next week, I'll continue this conversation, ladies, and I'll talk with you about how you can bring a specialness as well. But for all of us, what we really need is Jesus. So I'm going to give you a chance right now to respond by putting your next steps in your offering bucket. If you call this church home, it's an opportunity for you to give. There's some folks coming forward to receive your offering. But beyond those two steps, it's an opportunity for you to open up your heart. So all of these things are acts of worship. God, I'm going to take a step. God, I'm going to give back a portion of what you blessed me with. God, I'm going to open myself up to whatever you have. I'm going to do all of that in prayer. If you want to give back a portion of what God's blessed you with, let me just make an ob obvious observation. So for 14 years, people in this church have given dollars and pennies to make the ministry happen. Like literally paid for stuff. The rent in a theater, the rent in a high school, renovations and rent in a rundown church building, and then rent again in a theater, <laughs> and then here, and now we're in the middle of construction. And here's what happened. You took dollars and pennies and you did something special with it. Dollars and pennies that the Bible says will not make it into eternity. You used them, you leveraged them, you gave them, and God used them to make an eternal difference in people's lives. You took something temporary like dollars and pennies and you literally made an eternal difference. And it's been happening for 14 years around here. Thank you for that. You can't take your dollars and pennies with you, but we can make a difference for eternity with dollars and pennies. So thank you for that. What I'd like for you to do right now is pray with me for your next steps, for our offering, and for our openness to God's spirit. Father, thank you that you're the source of truth and life. Father, right now, we bow our heads, we humble our hearts. I come before you as one man who acknowledges his need of a savior. I need your grace, Lord. The things I said today are really beyond me. Without you, I am selfish, I am immature, I'm broken, but I come to you, Father, on behalf of myself and all the husbands and all the would-be husbands in this room, and I ask you, Lord, to make us fall so in love with you that the natural overflow of our commitment to you is a renewed and improved love for our spouse. Help us to see them as you see them, as precious, as daughters of the King. Father, help us to put away childish things, to live as men. Father, I pray for each man and woman in this place that we would open our hearts fully to you, 
that as disciples today would be a day we took one step closer to Jesus. We ask you to do that through our next steps. I ask you to do that through our offering. I ask you to do that in the conversations we're going to have this week in light of what we heard today. One step closer to you, Jesus. Once again, thank you for loving your bride with an incredible love. What a privilege. What a privilege to be called your bride. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.